the College Planning Edge. Multiply your odds of getting into your dream college and get your hands on thousands of dollars of fat, juicy scholarships. Brought to you by Lockwood College Prep, helping college-bound families get the edge in college admissions, financial aid, scholarships, and test prep. Andy Lockwood, welcome to the College Planning Edge podcast. This is a podcast dedicated to helping parents of college-bound teens figure out how to get in to a great college that's going to actually pay off for them at wholesale prices. We also touch on test prep and a bunch of related topics. Today, I'm very excited because we are going to be focusing on tips exclusively for business owners. And I'm a business owner. I'd say roughly 45-ish percent of our clients are self-employed or actually own businesses or their spouses own businesses. And um, a lot of times what gets overlooked is a tax type of planning that business owners can do. So because I am not a CPA, I thought it would be a good idea for me not to give that advice. And I brought on my personal CPA, Mr. Randall Rogg. Hello, Randall. Hi, Andy. Right, so you're coming in loud and clear. That's good. And he's been briefed on staying away from controversial topics, so that's that's important also. Um, so I first met Randall a few years ago, and then um, probably about a year after I met him, I went in to see him at his office with a draft of what was then my current accountant's um, tax return that hadn't been filed yet. And he looked at it for a few minutes because I wanted to get a second set of eyes on it. And, Randall, I don't know if you remember this, but I think you end up saying something like, yeah, I think you're overpaying your taxes by about $50,000. Do you remember that? Yes, I do. There were certain, there were, uh, certain simple things that we were able to do to um, take advantage of tax loopholes and tax laws that, if proficiently done, you can save thousands of dollars. Right, and I remember also asking you on a scale of one to ten, like how aggressive were any of these things, and you said, oh, yeah, maybe about a six. So, um, so that's now been three years, and uh, everything is great, and I have a lot of respect for you, and we refer people back and forth. So, um, I, th- I thought this would be a, a good opportunity to sort of spread some of the techniques that that you employ, not just for me, but for for your other clients. Um, before I start asking you about some of these techniques, can you just give me two or three sentences and, and our listeners two or three sentences about your background sure I am a uh, I've been a, a college graduate of Brooklyn College since 1982 have been practicing since 1986 as a CPA um, in a CPA firm I actually got my CPA license in 1989 I believe it was a little far back uh, and uh, uh, continue to uh, practice in a uh, firm out in Long Island with uh, with uh, two partners, um, and we're a growing accounting firm, specializing in small businesses. Yeah, specializing in making small businesses more profitable, um, specifically because there's a lot of accountants out there who you just sort of dump your information on, and they kind of say, okay, here's how much you pay. Whereas uh, you and I have several conversations throughout the year about things that I can do to minimize my tax burden, um, some of which I actually do, some I don't, <laughs> some I don't but you always give me the advice. And I think that's, that's, what, that's great about having, you know, um, more, than, more than just someone who does 
small business returns, you're, you're actually in our corner. So that's what's great. So, well, anyway. you and I have something. You and I have something in common since you don't take students at the last minute and try to get them into college. A lot of it is planning way before, so that you set yourself up in the right situation. And that's the same thing with taxes and tax strategies. You have to start planning at the beginning of the year to uh, to do what you want to do that you're going to file next year. Just like with uh, all the uh, colleges. Well, good point. That's actually very, very true. There's, there's very few emergencies in, in our, uh, in our respective fields, uh, and if there are emergencies, they're self-inflicted. So, so, I, I am definitely on the same page there too. All right. So, one of the things uh, we, we've talked about there's a few techniques and a few strategies, and I guess theories behind them that I, I want to touch on. Um, one of them is has to do with just the value of small businesses and on, on the financial aid forms which is sort of a, an overlapping area for us. Another one is um, I want to talk to you about S-Corps and sole proprietorships and C-Corps and, and things like that because there are different, you know, different scenarios which may make sense for some business owners to pursue at various times. And then there's also other, some other techniques such as um, putting kids on payroll and things like that. So I, I have a whole bunch of questions that I want to ask you about. But, but first, let's start with... The um, so so we have a client. I guess we shouldn't use his real name. It's a, a mutual client who is um, he's thinking about or has actually um, uh, formed a corporation in order to purchase some some real estate, and he's got some cash. And um, Pearl or I had given him advice to consider taking the cash and putting it into his entity because. That is one way to shelter it because on the on the FAFSA uh, business entities have a, a value of, of zero. But you brought up a few other um, considerations and other possibilities. So can you kind of walk through the, the pros and cons of doing that and some, some of the other choices? So the best thing about uh, having being uh, in your own business is that you can virtually exclude uh, all the uh, value of the business for a FASTA form if you have under, I believe it's 100 employees. Um, yes. Uh, and if you put it, if you put your assets into the corporation, the corporation, uh, if it's an S corp, as as our client had here, uh, he is being taxed. Uh, as a flow through, so he's getting the uh, the money being thrown onto his return. But when we look at the value of the uh, asset, it's zero. So therefore, nothing shows up as him owning these assets. They're excluded based on the uh, um, on the FAFSA, the free application for federal student aid. Based on the loophole that that was provided in that for uh, business owners. But you said maybe that's not the best thing to do. So, so talk about the other suggestions that you gave. Well, the the problem is that those that income passes through, and so interest and dividends are going to pass through the S corp to the individual return. And we have seen in some cases where the institute, some institutions, not all of them, but some institutions, start to ask about, oh, where are these investments coming from? Where is this interest and dividends coming from? And they start and they start. Uh, doing an investigation that you really don't need. Uh, you can simply uh, avoid that by going through a C corporation, a regular corporation, where the, the interest and dividends get taxed at that level, 
And if you want to pull the money out, you can pull the money out and pay, a, pay the tax and the dividend from the C corporation. Uh, you could take a greater salary if, you, if need be. There are ways of uh, working around a C corporation where you could have losses from the past and use that to offset current income. So just to back up, so the, the S corporation is a flow-through entity, meaning that the income just passes through the entity right directly to the individual's tax returns, right? Correct. And then is taxed at the individual's marginal rates? Yes. Okay. In contrast, the C corp, there's, there's two levels of taxation. There's the corporate tax, which could be uh, in- income that gets, I guess, stored at the corporate level, and then there's a corporate tax at whatever the corporation's earning uh, its profit is at 21 percent, and then when you take a dividend, when you take money out of that corporation, that's also going to be taxed at uh, dividend rates. So the question is, um, from a tax perspective, which is better, which is going to be more efficient, the S corp flow through entity or the double taxation at, at the C-Corp, that's one issue. And then when you then also look at the financial aid aspects of it, then that's another factor to, to weigh in because you're minimizing, in theory, you're minimizing the income that's dividended out to you because of the expenses that you might have at the corporate level. Is that correct? Yes. With a, with a regular corporation, you can actually control how much income you're actually showing. Uh, it may cost you a little more with the tax dollars to do so, but if you want to show a $20,000 salary and claim that you are barely making anything and at the same time have this corporation accumulate the assets that you're making, uh, that you're earning, that's okay. The, the, the real problem, though, there is that your lifestyle has to be uh, pretty much set that you can uh, live on what you're earning. So is it is there potential for more of a, an audit type of red flag situation if you're claiming an ultra low salary because of the S, of the C corp um, status? No, there's, there's actually uh, well that would actually depend on how much the corporation is doing in gross receipts. Usually, a corporation with less than a half a million dollars of gross receipts doesn't even get looked at. Whether it's a C or an S, uh, mostly corporations are looked at when they start to go over a million or two million dollars. Okay, that's interesting. So, so all of these things really go on a case by case basis. It's what do you need to live? Uh, how do you need? How, how do you get the money out of the corporation? How do you set it up? So uh, if you're using a portion of your home for your business, you can start to take the uh, take a rental income out of that. Use some of that to offset the real estate taxes. That if you're living in a high income state, you're not going to be able to deduct all your real estate taxes. But now you may be able to get some more of it onto your real estate income. Uh, it also depends on what type of industry that you're in because certain industries have preference as to how they're taxed. 
So if you're in a consulting industry, you don't have a you, you or, or a uh, professional industry, uh, you're going to be taxed at a higher rate than if you're in a, uh, a commission or sales in industry. Interesting. And if and what if you sell goods or products? If you're selling products, you're being taxed at a lower rate. You're being taxed at what's called qualified business income rate. So, again, it's the pieces that are there. And in a lot of cases, we're looking at the fact that clients should probably have both C and S corps because the rules there uh, allow you to take care of different, take advantage of different things in different ways. Okay, good. So there's no blanket rule, but it's certainly something it sounds like that a lot of self-employed people should take a look at and figure out which way to go, whether it's an S-Corp or C-Corp. Um, what about other forms of events? Well, like one, one of the main... Well, one of the main things between an S and a C Corp is who's paying for your medical insurance. If you're paying for medical insurance uh, on your, by yourself, it makes sense to have a C Corp. If you're paying it through, uh, through yourself, it doesn't pay to have an S Corp because you're being doubly taxed on that in that respect. It gets treated differently. Okay. So I'm sure that's just one example. And, I'm sure, and it sounds like there's plenty of other factors. So, so what about LLCs or sole proprietorships? Are there, is there any different discussion for other entities? Well, an LLC, an LLC is an interesting animal because you can uh, be a you could be a partnership as an LLC. You can be a uh, you can make an uh, election to be treated as a corporation in an LLC. So they all fall to uh, whether you know whether you want how you want to treat it. Um, the LLC as a single member gets treated as if it was being a sole proprietor. You really don't get a tax advantage out of that, uh, and it's difficult to navigate. Everything is going to be put onto your return basically just as you earn it. Okay. All right, so let's. you, you mentioned uh, as a side note the um, – the the ability perhaps if you work out of the house to deduct part of the home um, for uh, I guess as rental income can you kind of walk us through those guidelines because I think those are pretty interesting. Well, you're allowed you're allowed to use an office in home, uh, whether it, whether you're self-employed or a corporation. Uh, but they're treated differently if you're a corporation because at that point you're treated as if the corporate you can have it where the corporation is renting to the individual, whereas you're limited as a self-employed person to the fact that you can only deduct things that don't incur a loss to the extent that you don't incur a loss. Uh, for example, if you're self-employed and you're trying to take a portion of the use of your house, you're supposed to take the uh, portion that is exclusively used for business. So you and take the square feet, take, divide that. You take the square feet, you divide it by the uh, by the business use, and that pro- that proportion you get to deduct. So if you the, have a second bedroom that is used exclusively for home office purposes, you would just calculate the square footage? Yes, square footage of the, of, of the bedroom to the rest of the house, that percentage you get to deduct. Now, the other things that you're going to get to deduct are some of the things that are ordinary cost of yours 
living in that house, such as the landscaping to keep that property going, a repair uh, in the uh, plumbing facilities that that bathroom is used for part of, uh, you know, as uh, if you have people coming in to see you, they're using that facility, therefore that repair would be deductible. Uh, anything that's um, a part of the electric that's uh, being used in that percentage would be deductible. The insurance on the house would be deductible. The real estate taxes and the mortgage interest on that part of the house would be deductible. You also get to depreciate part of the value of the house uh, to that percentage. So that's really interesting and expansive because a lot of people when they, you know, who aren't in the know the way you are who discuss this seem to focus only on the square footage and not, and not the other attendant costs that are reasonably deductible. So that's that's very interesting to me. Let me ask you this question. Well, uh, there is one ca- there is one caveat here. Yeah. Okay, the idea is that you want to be in that home for uh, for a, a great period of time for a, for an extended period of time because it now becomes business property. So if you sell that home and the portion of that that was business property is going to be taxed at a capital gain rate. Interesting. Even so, if you never filed anything with the county or something, it, it still could be taxed that way. Yeah, yes, it can be taxed that way. The IRS is very lax with its guidance, so that means that if you decided that you were retiring and three years later after you retired, you put your home on the market and sold it, that they would deem as you converted it back to personal property, and there would no be there, there, you'd be able to take the exclusions that are currently in place. Uh, but if you sold it the, uh, the day after uh, you retired uh, or while you were still working and still using that office, uh, you haven't turned it back into personal property, there's a capital gain tax on that. Hmm. What about, and this, is, this may be a little out of the scope here, um, but you just brought up another question for me. What, what, what do you know about the obligations of people who work out of the house to get permits and things like that. Let, let's say you're an accountant and you have a or a lawyer and you work out of your house, you know, on the weekends. You do, you know, you do you do your reading and maybe you talk to clients on the phone or something. Um, do you ever see people get into issues with not having the right permitting? And I realize that's not a tax question. Well, the problem with that is there are different rules from state level down to county level and town level. Um, I live in the town of North Hempstead. Uh, the town of North Hempstead has a, has a law that says that uh, a sole practitioner can operate out of his home with one associate. I've asked the town at one point, what is the definition of an associate? And they refuse to even answer it except for told me that if you have more than one partner we have a problem other than that if nobody complains we don't care <laughs> well, well that's actually great surprising also okay, you know so my other question is that, that I, was, I was thinking about before is you know a lot of times people claim that they work out of a spare bedroom but then they might have you know, a family coming to visit them a few weeks a year who use that bedroom, what does that do to the deduction? 
Well, incident, it's a, the law specifically states that it's supposed to be uh, solely used for uh, business purposes. So if you're using your dining room table from time to time to have a conference, that's not really solely for business purposes. Uh, if you have somebody coming in for a week, uh, or or even a month, you know, a month already. I think it was starting to push it, but a week or two uh, as a spare bedroom. Uh, is it is it now displacing you from working, or are they just sleeping there? And as soon as they get up, you're back into the office working. Um, a lot of it, a lot of it is circumstantial. There is no uh, clear, definitive rules on this stuff until somebody challenges it and it gets litigated. Okay, now, and if you're paying yourself rent, meaning if you're um, attributing a, a fair market rental to yourself, how do you figure out the rental rate? What are the guidelines? Well, it's what, uh, it would be what would be fair and reasonable for that space. And how, and how is that calculated? Do you do a, a market analysis of the area, or what, what types of factors go into that? Uh, basically, a lot of times what we use is just reasonably what would you be willing to pay for that space? What would you be willing to rent it out for? Okay. As long as it's reasonable and you can defend it, hope, hopefully you won't have to, but that's, that's sort of the guideline, what a reasonable person would pay? Well, usually uh, it's not questioned because if I'm deducting it on one part of the return and picking it up on the other part of the return, uh, it just seems like the uh, IRS doesn't really care at that point that the income was there, the income was there. For them to move it around, uh, in their case, not to create much of a change, it's almost not worth their time and effort to do so. Uh, unless it's totally uh, outrageous, in, in the most part, you know, you're saving you're saving maybe uh, maybe three four thousand dollars to them. It's not worth doing an adjustment for that. Okay. All right. So let me let me circle back. There's a couple other areas I wanted to touch on. Um, going back to that technique of um, sheltering money into an S corp or a C corp. You would also suggest that something that overlaps our, our two disciplines here, which was um, per- perhaps looking at purchasing an uh, insurance product or, or an annuity product because they are off of the FAFSA balance sheet, uh, so to speak. So can you talk a little bit about that and, and how that could potentially help too? So sometimes in the right situations, it may pay to use a deferred annuity or uh, as an investment or a life insurance product that has uh, some type of uh, investing asset uh, attached to it so that you're accumulating an asset while it's not being listed anywhere and you're not paying tax on it. Uh, It's a legal tax deferred uh, situation because at any point in time when you decide to take the money out later on, after your kids graduate, uh, then it becomes taxable. So at one point you're, um, I hate to use the word hiding, but at one point you're legally um, not listing something, sheltering. Much less legally. Okay. Okay. Uh, in, In some cases you're legally sheltering items that uh, that may exist, but 
don't need, need that don't need to be listed. So when people ask me about things like this, I always say, well, an analogy is when you're doing senior citizen Medicaid planning, when a, you know the elder parent will move money out of their names, not hiding but sheltering that maybe in a trust or something else to get it off of the Medicaid balance sheet, so to speak. This is really the same type of thing. It's just in a different area where we're moving money from one bucket to another, completely legal and ethical, and it, while it does is in, improve the eligibility for education benefits as opposed to health benefits. That's the way I look at it. Yes, but depending on the uh, – it, it may not be uh, the ideal thing for everyone, depending on how much time you have to retirement and how much time you have – uh, you know, what's the difference between uh, your kids' age graduating college and when when you're leaving? Uh, there may be an open window that you leave yourself exposed for. Right. So, I, I so it's it's really intricate planning that needs to be done. Uh, in some cases, it's the right thing. Yeah. So, so what I was going to say was, I always warn people that I've been in this field 18 years. I've seen probably literally a handful that I could count on one hand of products that I think are suitable, and I've seen a lot of really bad decisions that other financial advisors have recommended. And it usually has to do with what, you're, what Randall just mentioned, which is the amount of time that you may have to lock up the money, and then there's also questions about the fees and just not understanding in general what you're investing in. So there's a lot of intricate moving parts, just like you said. Okay, what about other techniques to reduce, you know, that business owners can use to reduce income? So um, one thing you advocate is, is establishing retirement plans for, for, the, uh, for the business owner. Can we talk a little bit about those recommendations? Sure. So if you're establishing a retirement plan, uh, certain retirement plans are really owned by the business, and at retirement, the participant uh, is, is entitled to it. Uh, so those could be structured so they don't show up anywhere. It's not included as an asset uh, of, the, uh, of the parent. Okay, and then in terms of, the, you know, we don't have to go into all the intricacies of the of different types of plans, you know, profit sharing and things like that. But you told me many times there are some that are very flexible in terms of the amount of contributions that you have to make, and there are some that are more structured. Can you kind of talk generally about the differences that, that are out there, different shapes and forms? Well, there are things like there are defined benefit plans that you can fund for a benefit in the future where you can put a lot of money away. There are uh, plans where you can uh, uh, that are based on um, the percentage of income that you've earned, and the plans really need to be tailored about what you're trying to accomplish and who you're trying to uh, fund for. And again, it depends upon if you're, you could be a single uh, owner uh, corporation or you can have many employees. And if you have many employees, it needs to be a lot more detailed so that you can uh, put away for you without having to put away for all the other employees, uh, I shouldn't say without it, or putting away for all the employees in a minimal basis. There are different plans out there that can be scheduled, and again, it depends on 
the amount of people. Um, if you're a single uh, employer uh, corporation, it's real easy to do. If you're a multi-employee corporation, it's a little more difficult to do. Uh, although uh, we had one recently that uh, the uh, owners put away $128,000 of, uh, pro- of uh, profit uh, with uh, 25 employees and uh, 118,000 of that profit went to the employ uh, went to the owners, and uh, 8,000 went to the employees, and everybody uh, seemed to be happy that they got a piece of something, uh, and my client got a huge tax benefit. No, no, that's, that's terrific. So, so just to just to put that into the financial aid context, um, a lot of times Pearl and I get questions about how retirement contributions that individuals make to their own individual retirement plans, whether it's a 401k or an IRA or something, those will be added back to the tax, uh, to the income that the FAFSA will consider. So in other words, if an individual makes $180,000 and puts away $20,000, they may be taxed on only one sixty. But for financial aid purposes, the income that's considered is, is at the higher 180 amount. What Randall and, and I are now talking about is when a business owner puts that money away, not, not by himself, but by his corporation or his entity puts the money away into retirement, that shows up nowhere on the, uh, on the FAFSA. So just, I just wanted to clarify that. Is that accurate? That's accurate. So what about uh, just a couple other um, techniques? And uh, one I asked you about about um, a client of ours in in Texas, and uh, another one I want to talk to you about putting kids on payroll. So let me start with the putting kids on payroll. A lot of um, business owners um, should it sounds like should think about possibly if the kids are actually working for the business, paying them a salary in order to, um, I guess, for the kids to be taxed at a, at a lower marginal rate. I mean, I've just heard this from other CPAs a lot. You and I have talked about it briefly before. Can, can you talk about it, whether that's a good idea in, in any circumstances and what those circumstances might be if it is? Well, if you have the disposable income to, to do that, it may even make sense for you to uh, put the money into a uh, child's uh, uh, IRA account, whether it be a Roth IRA that they'll never pay tax on and let it grow tax-free, uh, if they can put into what up to what they earn or fifty-five hundred dollars, whichever is uh, uh, whichever the, the uh, lower is, um, and uh, it shows up as a non-taxable event for the child. Uh, it also lowers the uh, parents' income down by uh, the amount that you're paying them. But there is a pitfall because if the kid is earning, if your child is earning money, um, they're going to expect the child to contribute that to uh, to uh, his college. I believe, right? right. You're the expert so we, on that. We have many self-employed business owners whose income knocks them out of the box for need-based planning. So the the, the way I look at the, the two differences are that need-based planning involves. Um, for need-based financial aid eligibility involves moving money out of the kids' names in, in many instances. What, what we're now talking about is putting money in the kids' names because it's a different way to go because 
business owners, you know, high net worth business owners won't qualify for, for need-based aid. So, so that there has to be a determination of whether, you know, which way to go first, need-based or non-need-based. So, so, this, so my question is, what about, you know, do you have to stop declaring the child as a dependent? What are the other potential negatives in terms of, you know, additional payroll taxes? Like, can you walk us through some of those issues? Well, under the new tax law, that it really doesn't give you a benefit to claim the child as a dependent, and uh, if your income is, uh, if you're a high net worth individual, uh, high high income earning individual, because you're losing those deductions basically. Um, so it's going to be a look and see as to what we're supposed to do. Uh, the law specifically states though that if you can claim that child as a, as a dependent, you're supposed to claim that child as a dependent. Um, but if they're earning enough to, to sustain themselves as, uh, as, a, as an independent person, then um, you should be able to claim, they should be able to claim themselves as an independent person. So what is the income thresholds where you can't deduct a kid anymore, or if, if there is one? There, there is no income threshold. They've uh, uh, eliminated the. Um, they've eliminated the. I don't the uh, sta- the uh, deduction for the exemption deduction. The, there is a benefit uh, with a child tax credit. So if the child is under eighteen, you do get a tax credit, but that phases out. Um, that phases out. I'm not exactly. I don't actually recall where it phases out at, but um, it phases out and goes away. I believe at about the three hundred fifteen thousand dollar level. Okay. So, so it doesn't really. I mean, we're recording this in October uh, two thousand and eighteen. So I'm not sure when people are going to be um, listening to this. And of course, the laws could change any day. You never know. You never know. But um, in general. It's it's not a clear, clean-cut decision whether or not to put your kids on payroll, but it might be something that could help people, particularly if they make in that three hundred thousand dollars range. Is that fair to say? Uh, well, your child will have to be in a lower tax bracket um, right. for a considerable amount of time, so it may it may make sense. Right. So if you make four hundred thousand dollars and you're at the highest tax bracket, and you're able to legitimately divert $10,000 to your kid through services. Yeah, maybe they're working on your website. Maybe they're doing your social media you know, accounts. Maybe, you, know, you can find things for them to do that could actually help your business. If you're a business owner, then in, in theory, then you're going to be paying a much lower marginal tax rate on that $10,000 and therefore keeping more money. Right? Is that correct? That's correct. All right. So my last question has to do with the Texas uh, situation. That I was, I was trying to, I was a little perplexed because um, Pearl had talked to a client of ours, who is, um, she's in a professional services business, and she has her own professional corporation, she, which is one entity. She has um, with partners a sort of a holding company that they created, I think, primarily because of, um, uh, for, for, for health benefits for health insurance which I want to ask you about. And then what I was confused by, but you clarified this, was that she had a third entity, and again, she's in a different state. She's in Texas, but we have people listen you know, from all over the place, um, where uh, she had created an auto leasing company for, for herself. So can you, can you kind of address that whole structure? 
why it may, might make sense for someone like that? Well, I really don't know her situation. I haven't looked at it. But in certain states, there's a tax on um, on personal property. Uh, all, all, all states tax uh, income differently in a corporate level, so it may make sense to shift some of the assets outside to lower a tax rate as far as a leasing company goes. Um, I don't know if she's providing vehicles for just her or for her and her employees. That may also have made, made sense to do uh, if it was more than one person. Okay. And then what about the, you know, any, any comments on the holding company, you know, versus just being incorporated yourself without a holding company? I think she had partners at the holding company. I think it's a law firm where she has partners and um, but it's comprised of a bunch of professional corporations. Well, that would that would make a that that would make a huge difference if she's in the legal field. She is uh, she's not a uh, qualified business based on the nature of what they do. So before I alluded to the fact that uh, your occupation depends on how you're going to be taxed. The fact that she would have a corporation would allow her now to deduct certain expenses that she may pay for out-of-pocket, where before, if they were uh, out-of-pocket uh, expenses, you would be able to itemize them on your return and deduct them. They've re removed the itemized deduction um, uh, portion on, on Schedule A, which allows you to uh, take employee business expenses. And... Therefore, when I entertain somebody, if I'm deducting it as, a, as an employee, I no longer get to write it off. But if the business is entertaining somebody, they get to uh, – well, if the, if, the, uh, business is, um, if the business is entertaining somebody during a working period and a working meal, they would be able to write that off. Okay, and those, and those are there's more rules there behind that. I know we've we've talked about those, but I think I think we've covered a lot of ground. And I, th I guess the bottom line is that there's a bunch of not only loopholes, but sort of landmines. You know, things that that people do that end up costing them, them more money. So, like you started off with the, at this uh, at the beginning of this interview, the the best thing to do is to get on top of this stuff early and, and plan. Right, so. Uh, so thank you very much. Let, let me. Uh, oh, I just want to. Can I just reiterate and say uh, that the main thing is if you have time, like five or six years on the horizon, uh, and you're taking, you can take an additional salary in a uh, regular C corporation and uh, produce a loss uh, that you can carry forward. So at the time that your child is going to school, you can then use the net operating losses to reduce your income and pay on, and show that you actually have less income. Of course, you've paid the tax ahead of time, but that should more than offset the cost of uh, getting your child into a good college with financial aid. Good. Yeah, I mean, that's just one. That's a great technique and, and one of many hours in your quiver, so to speak. So um, how, do, how, do, how do people get in touch with you, and can you help people um, in states other than New York, or are you just exclusive to New York? No, we have clients uh, throughout the country and uh, th actually throughout the world. Um, 
Our phone number is 516-338-6884. Our email address is cpa at randallrog.com. And feel free to email us a question or give us a phone call. I'm sure we can help. So cpa at randallrog.com, R-A-N-D-A-L-L-R-O-G-G.com? Yes. And, and say the phone number one more time, a little more. Five one and maybe five one five one six three three eight six eight eight four. Great. All right. Well, this was great. Uh, thank you very much for taking the time to do this. I learned stuff. I took a lot of notes too, even though I've heard a lot of this from you before. So uh, I really appreciate it. And anyone who's listening who is a small business owner, I, I can't say enough good things about uh, about Randall and how supportive he is. And he's out of the box and sees things that most CPAs don't. And we know a ton of CPAs, so um, I'm not saying this lightly. So thanks again, Randall. Well, I just want to say that I've learned so much from you as well. In fact, uh, we used to do the FAFSA forms. We don't do them anymore because we know that you and Pearl do an excellent job on helping our clients, and we won't even touch them because you're the experts on them. I appreciate that. Okay, Andy Lockwood signing off from this episode of the College Planning Edge. Thanks for listening, and if you have any questions, I put a lot of information in the show notes here, and you can just go to our website also, lockwoodcollegeprep.com. Thanks a lot, Randall, and bye, everybody. Hi, this is Andy Lockwood. Don't forget to visit our website, lockwoodcollegeprep.com, for some more free, valuable information on how you can multiply your chances of admission to your dream colleges and qualify for thousands or tens of thousands of dollars of fat, juicy scholarships along the way. Visit lockwoodcollegeprep.com for information on our free upcoming workshops and webinars and to download a copy of our number one best-selling book, How to Pay Wholesale for College. That's LockwoodCollegePrep.com. Bye-bye.